Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates Podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Jim Dolan from WSFM. Jim has worked in radio for over 30 years, beginning in his hometown of Mackay, then moving on to 2UE in Sydney, and for the last decade at WSFM. He chats about being the jack-of-all-trades during the early days of his career, working during the halcyon days at 2UE, and the great Betty Mugginson. I've known Jim for over 20 years, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Jim Dolan, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Ralphie boy. Thanks very much for joining us. We're at Gladesville Sporties, are we? Yes. Normally very, very quiet on Thursday, but they knew you were coming, so there's pe- people here aplenty. <laughs> it's absolutely heaving. Now, you've just finished work, Jonesy and Amanda. You do the sport there for them? Correct. How's that going? It's fantastic. They're two of the best people I've worked with. It's always a pleasure to get involved there. Amanda, one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. She really knows her stuff and is very, very funny. Uh, last summer, the best of Amanda happens when you're away from work, when naughty Amanda comes out, but that's another story. And Jonesy, he's good news for jocks everywhere. There's still a chance that if you work in radio and you don't work on TV and you're not a comedian, you can get a job in breakfast radio in Sydney. And keep your job too. Yeah, not many left. Now, you've been doing that for about 10 years now, yes, is it? Yes, yes. And you would have worked with... Various amounts of news readers over that time, <laughs> and you'll manage to uh, still hold the fort there as the sports guy. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I say this all the time to everybody that uh, being sport, talking about on the radio, it's better than having a real job. And I get to watch the footy on weekends, and my wife can't do anything about it because it's work. It's all in the name of research. I love that. Correct. You also read into Brisbane as well as part of the newfangled way we yeah. do things in radio where you've got to multitask and do all that kind of thing. Yeah, this is modern radio. Breakfast is five to nine every half hour. And as well as WS, there is also spots on 4KQ, which is every half hour and also involved in programs. So very important to work ahead. Because if something happens, you never know when they'll ring. And because we're in a network, you can get a call from Melbourne to talk about something because I am the sports director of the Australian Radio Network. And due to the way things happen in these worlds, I am also the only full-time sports person in the Australian Radio Network. I was going to (laughs) say, he managed to get that on the business card, but uh, there's not a lot of choice out there. There should be an asterisk. Also, well, New Zealand's also on our network too, so I'm quite often doing things for their radio stations in Auckland and around the country there too. So take me through that then. That must be a busy shift. What time do you get in? I get there three. So just so you're ready, because uh, I've learned a long time ago, if you want to do something right, perfect for preparation or at least some good preparation is the way to do it. Uh, in the younger days, I used to think I could turn up and wing it. That's never been the case. I learnt moving from Sydney from another from a lot of people that, yeah, you get there, you're ready, you know what's going to happen. And so that if you do get a phone call from New Zealand or somewhere and they ask you a question, you at least know what it's going to be about. And if you don't know the exact answer, you can always bluff your way through. You mentioned there 20 years in Sydney. 
that must have gone by relatively quickly. Yeah, I came down from Mackay in 1996 because I wanted to work at the Olympic Games with the plans to go back home to North Queensland after that, but I met the Minister of War and Finance and certainly enjoyed what I was doing and have stayed here. I did do around the grounds for two UE before that. I lived in Mackay, would drive four hours up to Cowboys games and four hours home after the game just to do around the grounds for two UE's continuous call. Did that for the first season and almost all of the second season, then came to Sydney. We're currently watching one of your favourite sporting moments on the TV here at Gladesville, uh, the 1999 Grand Final. Who won that, Ralph? I can't remember. Melbourne may have won it in controversial circumstances in the last seconds of the game. If only Anthony Mundine had passed the ball. We'll come and see that in a a few seconds' time. But um, take me back to those days at at 2UE. As you said, 1996, that was when they were probably at the height of their power in terms of the lineup was fairly settled in that you had Jones on, on breakfast, followed by Laws, followed by maybe Brian, Brian Bury in the afternoon. John Stanley, John Stanley. Peter Bosley, Stan Zamanik, and John Kerr at night. And John Kerr, you know, he'd worked in the pirate radio days in England. He'd done breakfast around the country, so he was no slouch. And then weekends you had a star-studded lineup, and and waiting in the background was a star-studded lineup too. So, yeah, I was lucky enough that I'd done around the grounds. My friend Rick Wright was writing copy at TUE, told me about a job. I contacted Ray Hadley, not knowing anything about his reputation, and got a, a, uh, was lucky enough to get me to send a tape. I got a start, um, worked there, learnt so much from so many people. The first day I was there, John Laws spoke to me about a dozen times and asked me lots of questions, and I asked him a few, and I thought, how good is this place? Didn't talk to him again for two years after that, <laughs> but that's just we didn't cross paths. Um, and TUE, it was the first six months I was there, I thought, I'm not cut out for this because it was the number one station in Australia and everybody that worked there was a legend and things just happened. People every, people would listen. Uh, you'd someone say something on air, next thing, Richie Benno's on the phone and you answer the phone, you think, this isn't really Richie Benno. <laughs> yes, it is. He's just heard something that was said on air. And, and I also learnt from Ray a very valuable lesson about making sure you're right. He said, close enough is never good enough, never guess, always be aware of your facts. And that's something that stood with me to this day, that near enough or having a guess is never good enough. And I still double check everything I do to make sure, occasionally I still get something wrong, but because sometimes the source isn't always right. But yeah, I learned that very early on, make sure you're right. Let's go even further back. So you mentioned you're from North Queensland. Was there always an interest in media or interest in radio for you? Was that the path that was? Yeah, just radio, always. I I must admit, when I was young, I fancied being an airline pilot or Air Force pilot, but I was colourblind, still am colourblind, so that was ruled out. Plus, I don't think I was smart enough to do that either. <laughs> but I was always fascinated by radio, and I only went to grade 12 in high school because they said you have to have a driver's licence and a pass in English of a senior year, so... I finished school in November 1983, January 13, 1984. I was on air doing my first ever mid-dawn shift. That lasted for three years. It was all good fun. Mid-dawns was, yeah, an interesting time. You meet some of the most interesting people in the world. So where was that? That was in Mackay at 4MK. Okay. People wouldn't have that experience these days. There are no mid-dawn announcers or very few of them on music stations because it's all automated. So to get your start in radio, what, as an 18-year-old? Um, 17, yeah. It's 17 yeah. to be thrown on air. You yeah. must have been learning really quickly. 
about oh, the radio game. How good is this? And it, 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 people don't appreciate these days. I don't want to be one of those guys talking about the good old days, but in those days... Don't worry. There's been a few of them. <laughs> in those days, if you're making commercials and things, I'll never forget we had to make a commercial and we needed the sound, simple sound of the kicking of a football into a window that breaks. And you think, well, it's straight away in your mind you can imagine what that sounds like. And we had some old American sound effects records and everything that involved kicking a football was American cheerleaders going, punt, and then some sound that wasn't it. So you had to figure out. There's no internet, so you had to figure out what you were doing. So after hours, I've pinched the boss's big leather chair out of his office, brought it down, mic'd it up, and just given it a flick with the old fingernail. And that comes up and it sounds just like a football getting a decent punt and then you add the broken glass sound effect, and away it goes. And these days, you know, I was pretty happy that I achieved that. These days, you just go on the internet, don't like that one, don't like that one, yeah, this one will do. But you couldn't do that then. And the other thing about regional radio then is no networking, no computers, so you had to have somebody there. And as I quite often did, you could drive from Cairns to Melbourne, and you'd hear a different station, different music, and different style in every town. And it was just fantastic. It was, it was just, this is all so different. I used to think, I'm going to work in another country town one day. This is fantastic. And then, you know, networking took over and then computers. And sadly, now you can drive that same journey from Melbourne to Cairns and you can hear 2SM the entire way. And I'm not sure a lot of people want to hear 2SM the entire length of the breadth of the country. No, I don't think they do. So in those couple of years that you were doing mid-dawns, what did you learn from that experience? Uh, there's always someone listening. Um, you meet really interesting people after midnight. Um, when you're a young bloke, if they sound too good to be true in their ladies, it's always they're too good to be true. And uh, you also find some other – I'll always remember a guy ringing one morning and saying, oh, you're going to be talking about me on Monday. I've won the lotto. And I'm going, yeah, right. So you write down his number because he says, you better take down my number. And it turns out this time this guy had, in fact – won the lotto. So he's on the news, on our news on the Monday morning. Oh, this is fantastic. I've got wife, two kids. I'm going to look after them. We'll buy a house. We'll do this, do that. And that was all great until a check came through and he disappeared, never to be seen or heard of again. And wife and kids probably still wondering where he is. Wow. So what was the progression from mid-dawns? Because obviously you don't stay on mid-dawns forever. Although having said that, two years or, or a couple of years on that, the younger generation of today wouldn't last two months on, no. on that kind of shift. Whereas back in the day, you had to do it and you had, that was part of your, yeah. your learning experience and getting your flying hours up on, on radio. We had to work your way up. So I did mid-dawns, then I did nights. And then, of course, you come into the station, you volunteer to do a few things during the day, a bit of extras. You go out to OBs or go out to do some crosses and you end up, I ended up working through all of the shifts around the clock. Uh, I also was the, at times the Saturday morning newsreader because they didn't want to pay anyone. Funny, fancy that, not wanting to pay a newsreader. Uh, so I had to do that on Saturday mornings. But the weird thing was, I was only allowed to read, I wasn't allowed to write or collate any news. So Right, why was that? Uh, that was one of the conditions of the union and the way I was being paid. And so they said, yes, you can get someone to read it. No, they can't write or collate the news. It has to be laid out for them. So they'd laid out Friday afternoon and I'd just have to read it on the Saturday morning. Most boring thing I've ever done. And of course, uh, there was a murder one night, so I couldn't help myself and wrote a story. And that was the end of that. <laughs> they changed the way they did things then, no more Saturday morning news because uh, they didn't want to pay journalists to be on or someone to do a journalist's job. So that was just the way things happened. I was a promotions manager. I said that I, was, I produced commercials for a number of years. That's the most thankless dead-end job in radio because you're always there at the end of the day. No one ever thanks you. In the old days of carts, I'll never forget two weeks before Christmas, 
we produced 90 commercials on a Friday afternoon. Wow. And ran out of carts, so I had to wind some carts to put them on just so we could play the ads across the weekend on the Monday. I had a big meeting on the Monday saying, 90 commercials, I was here till midnight, we can't do this, we all had to work late. And the boss said, that'll never happen again, we'll put all these things in place. So, of course, the next Friday, we did 94 commercials on the Friday afternoon. And it's just, yeah, it's the most thankless job in radio. Doing that and working in a a station like that would have actually taught you to become the all-rounder of the you radio station, be, yeah. which you did. You, well, you did all of the all of the jobs. I came back from a holiday one time and the general manager said, hey, uh, while you're away, I've made some changes. So what have you done? He said, I've got rid of the technician. I go, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, you know, he's a bit behind the times, old school. We needed something new. He said, and you and I can handle what we do. And I said, I know how to press the button to turn the station back on, but beyond that... I'm, I've got nothing, and I'm not touching anything of the transmitter. But he thought it was a great idea to unload the technician. So for a while, the standby technician was four hours away in Townsville. So if anything went wrong, you're off air for at least four hours. And at one stage, because there was no service at the transmitter, we were off air for more six days while they waited for a new radio valve. Management, eh? Never changes. You've got some great stories of how it used to be, whereas today that kind of thing just wouldn't happen or people know what job they have to do and they don't go beyond those parameters. But at least in those days, your title described what you did in your job. These days, now the trend is to have um, executive present three-star general of um, the toilets or whatever. Just nobody's job description describes what they do anymore. And I think, you know, some places can get a bit top-heavy from that. And, um, and I don't know if there's as many all-rounders as there used to be. What was the progression from then? Or was it always at the one station in um, Mackay? Yeah, I, I did. Oh, I think it was 13 years and I ended up in Mackay. Then there was the chance, just as I'd set up doing promotions, I was going with Sunday Islands for at least three days every fortnight. And I only got to do that once before I got the offer to come to Sydney, move to 2UE, uh, read the sport in the afternoon, worked with Peter Bosley on his sports show, a fantastic bloke, learnt lots there, learnt lots from lots of people, got involved. Stan Zamanik used to want me to come on at night at 10 o'clock and give him what was going to be on the back page of the, or the front page of the newspaper the next day, and I'm going, <laughs> Stan, how, how? But, you know, we had a laugh and a lot of good times and worked with so many good people, you know, Alan Jones in the morning, and you could have a disagreement with him and come back and fight another day as I'm sure you well know Ralph and then a lot of the others who appear on the John Laws show it was always a career highlight listening to him from afar too that when that introduced him two years before I left and into Mackay and the audience just went up in that because people wanted to hear John Laws and then to hear the way he did things then get to the other end and see the way he did things and learn some of the tricks of the trade just learning about radio all the time. I was going to say what was it like working at a place like 2UE close up when they were dominating and radio really did hold its place as one of the most important parts of the media. This is the transition period from internet was just starting to come in, so yeah. radio still had it, had its place and um, audiences were much bigger than the fragmentation that we see now. Yeah, well, you just knew that if you rang somebody when you worked at TUE, they'd ring back. And like I said before, that if you said something on air, somebody would be listening and they would ring up. And you'd get sent things and get invited to things that didn't sort of happen before. And I remember the boss there saying at one time, because you complain about all the phone calls you get, somebody, oh, you didn't tell me the Hartlepool score in Division Three English soccer this morning. And and you say, oh, so you eventually get to know that guy and you just you give him the score and he rings up. But 
the boss once said, I remember Tony Molson, he said, it's when the phone stops ringing that you start worrying because if they're not complaining and they're not wanting to know things, it means they're going somewhere else and they're listening somewhere else. So that was the big thing at 2UE, especially in the heyday, that as much as, as some of those calls and complaints, and sometimes the complaints weren't even about us, they were about regional stations or whatever, uh, you, as long as they were ringing up, you knew they were listening. And if you made a mistake, they rang up and they let you know and you felt bad about it, but you knew somebody was listening. That newsroom as well was <laughs> one of the great Massive. newsrooms in the country and it was huge. That was when I was starting to come through and I was working for 2GB at the time, but naturally there was a um, competitiveness that doesn't now exist due to the fact that there is a merger. But just listening to all of those voices on air as I was sort of coming through school and at the, the, the time that, that you were there as well is that there were so many great old journalists and I spoke to Murray Olds earlier on this podcast series and he was the news director at that time yep. uh, before sort of taking over a specialist role as the Olympics reporter. So it must have been a real eye-opener for somebody from Mackay to come down and just watch these guys in action. Yeah, well, Jim Angels was reading the breakfast news and such a magnificent voice and very, very professional. Then Sandy Eloise in mornings, Bronwyn Martin in the afternoon. It was just went from strength to strength. And uh, a lot of those people have gone on to bigger things. Greg Burns was reading nights. He's now uh, is very senior at Sky News, putting together heaps of shows there. Justin Kelly was a cadet, basically, coming through the system and Rose started at nights and mid-dawns and rode his way through. And just such an impressive lineup. And even in the the sports department, you know, guys like Murray Shaw and Andrew Martin and Damien Kelly that were all sort of there that were rising through the, the ranks at that stage when sport was actually considered an important part of the news. Yeah, well, it, it, to you, it was it for sport. People listened there, had the rugby league, had the Olympic Games coming with the Olympic Channel uh, called Rugby for a while. Peter Jenkins, who was writing for the Australian and a number of rugby magazines worked there on weekends. It was, it was just, it was a very, very strong lineup and it was pretty competitive too. Ben Fordham was working in the newsroom at that time too. Tommy Malone, he's now the boss of Channel 9 Sport. He went on to be the boss of 60 Minutes too. And, you know, people... It wasn't out of the ordinary to be called in on your day off. And you didn't say, but it's my day off. You just went, righto, I'll be there. And I'll never forget one of my birthdays. <laughs> I was the only one not at my birthday party because it was my day off, yet I was at a Robbie O'Davis drugs hearing till 2.30 in the morning while everyone else was having a good time. And that was the thing about that kind of thing is that, like you said, you didn't question it because that was your job. But not only that, you, were you wanted to be part week. of it. Yeah, you were working at 2 week. And it all it paid off when you got to go to things. Like I remember being working at uh, the grand final in '97 when Andrew Johns went to the right, and you, everyone thought, "What's he doing there?" And I had the perfect vision of it straight down the line of where he was going. The pass, Darren Albert scores, Newcastle win the grand final. Just one of those moments. Got a chance to experience plenty at the Olympic Games. Got to be at the Olympic Stadium when it opened, and they had that rugby game with 109,000 Australia versus the All Blacks. So the All Blacks led 15 nil early. There's a, a picture, an aerial shot out at the stadium of just before full time and with 109,000 people there, I can actually see where I am on the sideline because I'd gone down to give Magoo a new set of batteries for his headphones and you can see me and him on the sideline. Just these tiny dots, but it's us. You were working for the Continuous Call as part of that rugby league coverage yes, um, for a lot of years. 
having done the round the grounds for them, that must have been exciting to actually be <laughs> close up. Yeah, well, to be there and see how it worked. And this is where Peter Falingos was a telegraph journalist and a print journalist, but he worked on a continuous call. He's the one that I learnt that you can't all get along and if you all have the same opinion, it's pretty boring radio. And he would quite often, and I'm not sure how many people would be prepared to do this, I'm sure plenty would say they would, but when it comes down to it, to be the bad guy, to get a reaction or, you know, just for some entertainment, he would be prepared to do that on a regular basis and it would generate calls and it would make fantastic radio. And I learned that from him that, you know, you can't sit on the fence and you can't be the good guy all the time. If you've got an opinion, you've got to back it and sometimes you've got to be prepared to be unpopular. And I'll never, ever forget that. And uh, I miss Peter Frelingos. I would never thought a print journal could teach me so many important things about radio. It seems a lot of that stuff's lost now. It seems a lot of it is, is staged. And yeah. it's not authentic. Creating entertainment for entertainment's sake seems to be the way people go these days because it can create mock outrage, whereas some of those great arguments, the guys in the box were very passionate about their views and they weren't afraid to air them. And, it, and as you said, it, it became great radio. Yeah, and the good thing was too that they might still disagree when we went off air, but they'd talk to each other and, you know, and drop it and we just go back to our normal lives, even though... Next week when we're on air again, they might take up from the same position. They could understand where the other guy was coming from. One of the great arguments that went on was between Chippy and Phil Gould in a in a box. <laughs> at, I don't know, they might have been at Newcastle one day or something. Yeah, it was I think so. at the height of the, the Super, Super League, League War, War yeah. where Chippy was obviously employed by News Limited, who yep. were staunch Super, Super League. League, and Gus was a heavy... ARL man because yep. he was doing a lot of recruiting for the for the ARL. So to have those two guys on opposite sides of the spectrum in the box every week, it, it was like, it was like a wick. That, but I remember they sat virtually beside each other and they looked at each other in the eye the entire time they said that and they were both very passionate about what they said. I don't think they were really friendly when they finished but they were professional enough to shake hands and agree to disagree. Tell me about working with Ray Hadley. We touched on it a little bit earlier. As most people would know, he's very much a perfectionist when it comes to getting things right. You always seem to be on the the right side of Ray, as it were. Uh, Would, Would that be fair to say? Most of the time we've had our moments for sure, but like I said, we and we spoke about it, he certainly he wanted you to be aware of what you're doing and and uh, to raise credit, he would back you to the hill if you were right, if you're in a bit of a jam or and I'll never forget when Southern Cross took over to you and I was made redundant and I had to ring Ray and tell him and he was devastated and I know he tried his hardest to get me back in there but that was something they weren't going to bend to do so you know I'll always be thankful for him for that we we had some doozy agree- uh, disagreements at times uh, and to his credit the, the next day he'd come back and say right I was calm so we worked it out we can keep going forward so that was quite good and I did I learned so much from Ray but he's such a full-on person and he, he lives for his job that sometimes being a confidant of his could be hard because if he was in the car on his way home from a function at midnight and he had an idea, he'd have no hesitation ringing even if you were doing breakfast the next morning. So, you know, he was he's on duty 24 hours a day. He's thinking about what he's doing and, and how he can be better. So, you know, he's um, very committed and that's what he expects from everyone around him. I don't think anyone who's ever done a half-assed job has lasted long with Ray. It's all or nothing. Having had... That previous experience in Mackay to do a lot of jobs 
coming into the Sydney newsroom there at TUE where you were just doing sport, but you're also part of the Continuous Corps. Wearing all of those hats helped you to fit in where things were needed as well. So did you look on back on that experience as like, okay, well, actually I can just offer a whole lot more than being the sports guy? Oh, that was just from where I came in radio. That When I first started in Mackay, we had a decent size staff, but eventually it gets whittled down when you have different owners, so you learn to do a lot more things, and I just have always been one of those, if there's something to be done, you dig in and everybody helps, and so that was never a problem if I had to do something else at TUE, and and I was really proud of my time at TUE, and working for what was the biggest radio station in Australia was such a proud history, such a strong lineup, and you know, just so many famous people would come in, in throughout the doors, and it was just a pleasure to be there. Tell me about the Sydney Olympics experience. What was that like from your point of view? Because the dream was for you to come down to Sydney to work at the Olympics and you achieved that. From memory, I came back from overseas just specifically to be around the city for the Olympics and there was a lot of doubters about how we were going to pull it off, but it was just a magical two weeks. What was it like working on the coverage? Well, just to be a part of Sydney, it was people would let you in in traffic they would wave. They would assist you with anything for that two weeks. Straight after the two weeks, it was back to get out of my way, idiot, and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but it just it came upon us so soon after the end of the football season, which I think was good because it didn't give you too much time to think about it. But we were out there, and that's the quickest two weeks of my life. I think it was 7 or 8 o'clock every morning till 2 o'clock the next morning. Still managed to go out a couple of times and enjoy a few quiet beverages and take advantage of a few things around the town. But it was... It was just fascinating that there was something going on all the time and you had to be across it. And I found that we had – Ray was doing the swimming and the athletics, so he was always there, but there's something else always popped up. And we were doing um, a co-broadcast with the ABC, so we had our boxing commentators that were supplied by us, but we couldn't – pardon me, always go to them because we had to go through the ABC channels and they preferred gymnastics in the evening, which I didn't think came across that well on radio. Yeah, so – there's a couple of times where there was things like um, – and because I was in there and I had – I remember I had two mobile phones and three landlines and they just went all the time with someone wanting to know something and you're putting out the schedule for the next day. And But if something happened, I remember I had to get up and call Taekwondo one night because there was a young Australian who'd got into the second or third round that no one was expecting and there was a bit of a, a gap there and someone should do it. So I've had to jump in and call that. Dougal Saunders famously took himself off to the water polo and scored Australia's, called Australia's great win over the USA where he's reached levels through his height of excitement that only dogs could hear. But uh, he, he had such a great time. And we well, also, I remember like John Stanley even called a gold medal at the archery, didn't he? He was only there because I was there the day before when there was another guy we thought was going to go okay and he was a butcher from Western Australia and he'd gone okay and I went to have a chat with him and I sat next to Simon Fairweather and I wanted to have a chat with him but he'd waited two hours for the bus and hadn't shot that well that day so he was not in the best of moods. <laughs> next day, Stanley's there and he wins an Olympic gold medal So, and I had a chat with him again later that night and it was just things like that. The one, They were my favourites, the ones you didn't expect to win apart from Cathy Freeman, a girl from Mackay, went to school with my sister and got wow. out there. Yeah, and I was with Steve Price, the stadium erupted. Pricey actually said, I'll never be able to bag Sydney again. This is the greatest moment I've seen. <laughs> and straight after that, uh, I'm walking out of the stadium and I run into Kathy's mum and brother, Norm. 
and they were just floating on air and I just watched them walk past, give them a bit of a wave and thought they're the happiest people I've ever seen. And, you know, and Kathy was just all relieved after that. So just another magic moment that happened and, uh, yeah, it wasn't a lot of sleep. Like I said, I remember one day where they said there was 200,000 people in the precinct and it was 40 degrees and it had been so busy that I actually just flicked a monitor to the outdoor areas and, yes, there was a lot of people there. And then I walked about six metres and stuck my hand outside and gone, yes, it is hot and then it was back to work. And of course, we had a staff of 48 to call the Olympic Games. The Paralympics won two weeks later, and there was five of us. Wow. (laughs) Just thinking about what the city was like at that time, and then being able to deliver that on radio, that's something that no one will be able to take away from you. Yeah, well, Ray's call of the walk, no one will ever forget where we've, uh, we're coming to the state, into the stadium, uh, disqualified, red flag for having both heels off the ground. And, you know, um, Channel 7 was so enamoured by that call that they actually used it over the top of their footage as opposed to the athletics call that they originally had because it was, Ray's was just so emotional and yeah. he'd taken it to another level and it was, it was just moments like that. There's also the dodgy stuff too where you'd have, um, radio stations from overseas who were trying to get around the accreditation rules and they'd ring and say, hey, we understand you guys did something good. Could you perhaps give us a tape of that? And, yeah, why don't you come and get it? Oh, uh, we're not allowed in the IBC. (laughs) 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 Okay. So, but did you meet a whole lot of people from around the the world when you were when you were covering yeah, it? lots like, from Athens who are pitching up for jobs at the next games. <laughs> uh, uh, the boys from New Zealand we always had a sort of close association with them. A couple of them had to call the closing ceremony and once the marathon was finished, basically our job was done and we had two days off before we could start on the Paralympics. And so we were in the bar in the media centre and the boys from New Zealand had a book that had exactly to the second when things were going in the closing ceremony and they decided they didn't really want to be in the stadium for the updates so they just sat with us at the bar and thumbed through the book and on cue we had to cheer when they would say and here comes Kylie Minogue into the stadium and we would all cheer and we did have some time for some fun during the games where we introduced uh, the reporters the name Betty Margotson this will be talking out of school now but it was uh, whenever you could get in across the name Betty Margotson, everyone else would appreciate that. So we had crosses from the softball where an umpire had called somebody out controversially. They were referred to as Betty Margotson. The, um, uh, the first aid at the equestrian, that was Betty Margotson. The official at the marathon that got in a runner's way, also Betty Margotson. And it came down that we told these New Zealand guys this on the last night, and they thought this was hilarious and they wanted to be part of it. So when the F-111 flew over the Olympic flame to extinguish it to signify the end of the Games, they just happened to be on air at that time, and they said, here comes the F-111 to extinguish the flame, flown by Australia's most senior female our pilot, Betty Margotson. I love the internal <laughs> jokes. Sometimes in radio and in media is that you've got to have fun, right? So yeah. to play these little side games and to have these other little things going on air where you are part of that as you know, whether you're the off-air staff or whatever it is, just keeps things going, keeps things interesting. And people still remember that because at the Commonwealth Games in Manchester after that, Tom Malone was working for TUE at the Games and he was doing a cross Sky News where Murray Shaw had moved from TUE to Sky News live on the sport. And at the end of the cross, Tom said, thank you very much, Murray. Betty Margotson sends her regards. 
to which on radio is very good, but Murray was on TV and started laughing. <laughs> so for the dozen or so people who knew what that was about, it was very funny for the rest of the viewers, a little confusing. Well, it's like the story that Andrew Moore told me about in the first episode of this podcast series about the Applegate family, <laughs> which he uh, managed to bring over from 2UE to 2GB when he moved and then took them back to 2UE when he went back. And Damien <laughs> Kelly's favourite reporters. I guess it wasn't long after that that, like you said, Southern Cross came over and, oh, well, I suppose it was about 12 months um, yeah. after the Olympic Games that Southern Cross came over and a whole lot of people got made redundant, yeah. I think about 30 or 40 people on the one day. Yeah, they managed to take the number one radio station in Australia to number five in Sydney and thought that Ray Hadley and Ellen Jones weren't worth it at 2UE. So that decision's paid off really well. Uh, but that's just the way modern radio is and, you know, a whole heap of us were made redundant. I've been to North Sydney Bowling Club twice in my life and on both occasions I've been made redundant that day. So if you're having something at North Sydney Bowls Club, please don't invite me. <laughs> But it must have been really sad just watching yeah, the demise of a, of, of, a, of a great radio station. They that, went through by numbers. They didn't see what people did or care what they did. They just went through by numbers and said, no, don't need that. This is how we do it in Melbourne. And Melbourne and Sydney are very different markets. If you put 3AW in Sydney, it would probably rate with 2SM. No one would listen because it's just too different. Sydney- it is like that, isn't it? It's just like it doesn't seem to be from radio owners that, really intelligent way of of looking at things because what works in one area doesn't necessarily work in another. And Sydney's a tough town to crack. Yeah. And you would imagine if someone from Sydney went to Melbourne and tried to take over and do things in Sydney way, the reaction from the public there wouldn't be pretty either. And, you know, not really having a crack at at 2SM or anything, but it's just that they don't rate very strongly here in Sydney at the moment. And I don't think 3AW would have too much that would attract audiences because it's a very, very different style of broadcasting. It's a different city. It's a different culture. Yeah. It's, it's the way people look at things differently. I mean, you, you only have to look at uh, – it's been tried a number of times in the in the FM market where they've brought up and tried to syndicate Melbourne. Melbourne has a very different sound, a very different sense of humour, a very different way of looking at life. You know, people from Melbourne – think they're better than Sydney, but when reality, Sydney people know that they're better. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, the, the boss of Melbourne wanted all the microphones, um, the bottom end taken out of them so that the announcers would sound the same as the callers. And I can't imagine John Laws or Peter Bosley, you know, people wanting them to sound like the callers. They've got such fantastic voices for radio. Why do you want to make them sound like they're on a telephone or a tin can? Talk to me about working with Peter Bosley. You touched on it earlier. You said you learned a whole lot from him. He was the consummate radio professional, but he also (laughs) knew how to have fun as well. Well, one of his greatest moments is his life is working for um, 2KY and they were sport racing and country music and he was doing the breakfast show and he played ACDC and got suspended. So he's got a telegram from the boys from ACDC saying to keep on rocking Boz. So. Wonderful. You know, and he was always up for a gag. He, he'd be the first to admit he did not know everything about every sport. Rugby league, you know, after North Sydney went, he sort of lost a bit of interest in that. And he didn't watch every game every weekend like the rest of us. Loved his golf. He could tell you everything about that. But he was entertaining and he could make an interview with anyone entertaining. And that's the way he liked to do it. And 
he uh, he yeah he knew what was what people wanted to listen to. His sports show rated very well, but and he always wanted it to be better. And he was always such fun on air or off air. It was nothing for him to. <laughs> put shaving cream on the handset of the phone and then ring Damien Kelly and he would get him every single time. Andrew Moore again told me about how when he was 16 or 17 years of age reading the, the sport updates and Boz had just in the middle of it just light his scripts <laughs> and just set them on fire. So, you know, this kind of behind the scenes stuff is, you know, people pressing their bums up against the windscreen of news readers while they're trying to read the, yeah. <laughs> the news. Yeah. It's not yeah. the folklore. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, Boz always was enjoyable of a good time. He enjoyed his listeners and, and people liked listening to him and thought they related to him. And I'll never forget uh, the first time I met Roger War was at a, one of Peter Bosley's trivia nights that he had for a charity. And Roger War, parent, uh, father of Mark and Stephen War, was able to tell me everything about me because he listened to Boz religiously. And I thought, wow, there's some people listening to this show. Really closely. <laughs> but that was the thing also. It was just like, you know, listening to that shows that you could get bits and pieces of people's personalities or you knew there was an in-joke there between Boz and the, whether it be Murray Shaw or Damien Kelly or John whoever the, the case may be, um, that, that, that there was something going on behind the, the scenes. But you were left just... Dangling, and yeah, that's the yeah. the art, the true art of radio. Oh yeah, and yeah, he would get people in, and he he'd talk about things one night, and sometimes he'd get off on a little bit of tangents about things, and people would find it hilarious and entertaining, and it was because Boz was an entertainer more than a sports journo, and yeah, it was pretty sad when he decided radio wasn't his go anymore, but uh, he's certainly enjoying playing golf four or five times a week and loving life. I was also going to say that I don't know from a listening point of view, I always kind of felt that the Sports Today program just went a little bit off when he had the co-host because he wasn't able to shine as much. So I think Gus Gould might have come in originally, then it was Gibbsy, then it was a whole lot of revolving panellists that were working with Boz. But I don't think that that show had the same elements that it was when it was just Boz and whoever it was doing the sport update on the half hour. Yeah, and probably uh, Boz's biggest weakness is he didn't realise that. He thought, well, why would people care what my opinion is when I've got Phil Gould or I've got John Gibbs or I've got Greg Alexander? But they did want to hear what Boz said because he knew what he was talking about and he was funny when he spoke about things too and entertaining. Then after that period of redundancy, you went and worked at 2GB. Via the West Tigers. Via the West Tigers. Tell me, I forgot about that. What was that experience like? Uh, yeah, I got dragged into work in the media the year that uh, they had two players test positive for drugs at the preseason launch, and John Hopperwati was sticking his finger where he shouldn't. So I had to try and get good publicity for the Tigers that year when they weren't playing that well. So it was. I remember a lot of things. You got some publicity, that's for sure. Yeah, I remember the funniest None of thing it was good. had to do playing cards featuring all of the players. And when you do a playing card, you want a front-on shot that shows the sponsor's jersey and them carrying the ball or them making a tackle. So I managed to get all of the players from the photos we had, except the skipper, Darren Centre. There was, I think, 30 photos of him, and in 29 of those, he was arguing with the referee. So it was hard to find one of Darren in action, but eventually it did. So then you got called back to work in radio for 2GB through Ray. Did he give you the the start? Damien Kelly's wedding, Ray's wife, Suzanne, talked me into coming back saying Ray needed me. Went back there, and he had a whole new team around him 
working behind the scenes. So, you know, I had to try and get a few people to show what Ray expected. That went on for a while. Um, Ray had promised me certain things and the management at 2GB didn't seem to have the same picture. And when it worked out, I was working seven days a week for not very much. Decided, yeah, that wasn't for me. So it was time to go. I wasn't Ray's favourite person for a while after that, but I think he eventually understood and we'd get on now. Then it was back to TUE because... John Stanley rang me and said, would you like to come back and do this under a different role? And so it was different then. A lot less people there. It was a lot more work to do and obviously didn't have the rugby league or things like that and they'd made a few mistakes with some of the people they'd hired so had to sort a few things out but eventually but it was never going to be the same again because their hands were tied by management in Melbourne. Talk to me about what they did to prevent you from doing your job properly because like you said before it was all about trying to introduce Melbourne ideas for Sydney and trying to keep making that mistake over and over and again when it clearly wasn't working. Well, they didn't have any money. They didn't want to bid for the rugby league, or if they did, they didn't want to pay too much for it. They just wanted to basically adopt everything that worked in Melbourne and thought it would work holus bolus in Sydney, and that was never going to happen. So they, yeah, we just were the poor relations after that, and things just got tougher and tougher, and eventually there was even more redundancies, and it was time to go again after another couple of years. Do you ever get disenchanted with radio at any point? Because I've sort of been through a couple of redundancies myself, so I know what it's like, but it it has this strange magnetism to suck you back in. Yeah, oh, you lose faith with it all the time when you see some people that rise to the top in certain places and you think... One, they're not really in it for radio, and two, I don't know if they've got too many ideas. And, you know, I just love radio. I just I spend all my time listening to the radio. My wife likes to watch the TV in the mornings if I'm at home on weekends or whatever. It's always the radio and flick around, and she likes to turn it up and listen to the music when it's on. I like to listen to the bits between the music because you just want to hear what's going on and what people are doing and if I like it or if I, if I don't like it. and because you can always be better and you can find ways to improve things. So you, you listen to everything. I listen to our station a lot to try and, you know, if I can help somebody out. Not that I know everything, but might know a couple of things. And then what was it like to, after years of working the grind in the AM stations, to go over and work where you currently work at Macquarie Park these days? It used to be North Ride, but now it's Macquarie <laughs> Park. Glenn Daniel gave you that opportunity to come and work alongside him to do the, the sport. Yeah, in the morning. Glenn's one of the most amazing people I've ever worked with. He can do so many things at once. He does the job for probably two or three people without even breaking a sweat. He is, yeah, there's, I would suggest there's not too many, if anyone like him in radio, that can do so many things at once and be on top of so many things and be fairly fair and principled about it all. And a good guy to work with. You know, he'll bend over backwards to look after his people. He's pretty strong in his values. He knows what he thinks right, and he'll stand up for himself and backs himself, and he's right most of the time. And have you ever seen him lose his temper? I never have, and I've known him for 21 years. I think I've seen him come close. Gee, take me through that, because that must have been something that would have pushed him right to the edge, because like I said, I've, I've always known him to be, as you said, straight to the point, but also calm and collected and been able to do a whole range of jobs but at the same time be firm in a management sense because if you knew that you wanted something you knew that Glenn would go in to bat for you. Yeah well I've seen him argue with management and he's always come under pressure and he's got an answer for everything and whereas I would fly off the handle 
he doesn't. He stays calm and has a reasonable argument. He doesn't always win, but he's pretty much right with the argument most of the times. We did have one time where he was cranky at me because I, for the life of me, in one morning must have stuffed it up three times to Urawa Red Diamonds. I still hate that soccer team. <laughs> well, you were just amazed the way that he prepared and the way that he delivered. And I, I just yeah. used to sit there some mornings and just used to think, this guy's like superhuman from a radio perspective. Yeah, I could come in and he's banging out stories for himself. He said, oh, by the way, I saw this, so I rolled on that for you. And he's written up a story. And I'm going, that was only on 10 seconds ago. And at the same time, he's air-checking somebody from one of the other stations that he has to look after and taking notes on that. So, yeah, just completely full on with everything he did. I would say the only uh, problem with Glenn in news is his reluctance to adapt to technology. He still uses a tape recorder and even has cassettes spare ready to take over from the ones he's currently using. Oh, no, I saw him advertise the other day on Facebook. He's looking to upgrade to get some software into his iPad, so he's moving with technology a little bit, albeit slowly. He still had this cassette player at State of Origin. Did he? <laughs> yes. Did he really? Yes. He used to take cassette player to yes. State of Origin. The cassette recorder at State of Origin for interviews, yes. How was the quality? <laughs> it's all good. I just don't know how he sits through it in real time again. That used to be the bane of my existence at TUE where you'd go to a job and it'd be 10 o'clock at night and you'd know you'd have to go back to the station and listen to it for another half an hour while you downloaded it and then cut it up. Thankfully, we could skip ahead these days. Oh, that's the best thing. That's what the young journos these days don't understand how lucky they are with technology like that and the internet. And they said, oh, how did you get by before the internet? I said, I carried a notebook around with everything in it and gold. And at 2UE, we virtually either locked away the reference books or chained them to the desk because everybody wanted them. Do you remember, and I'm sure you would, having to get cricket scores from the scoreboards? (laughs) Ring the whacker, ring the gabber. Hello, beautiful Bell Reeve Oval where it's 12 degrees. Or when there's a golf tournament on, there used to be media centres where there used to be four or five people on phones to give you the media scores. And tennis tournaments around the world, I guess. It was, yeah. And you'd have to think, well, I want to leave this as late as possible so I get the right score, but I don't want to leave it too late that it's engaged by some other bugger from another radio station trying to mess me around. So, yes, those were the days. Do you think it's impacted on your memory at all? Like in terms of, I think, going to sporting events and remembering certain events or whatever the case may be, you're just to be able to answer it off the top of your head. Nowadays, you can just rely on Captain yeah, Google oh, all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I always, like I said with Ray, I check everything I do. Even if I think I'm right, I won't guess. I'll go back and check it. I find that my job impacted the most on me is when I go to the football now, I don't always watch the play. And even if I'm just there with some mates having a beer, I will always have a pen and paper and I'm watching the back play and I'm watching the sidelines to see who's coming on and off, to see who's injured and to see who's gone down. It's a terrible habit that... I can't really – and I look forward to one day being able to enjoy the footy again and not watching for what's going on in back play and who's just come off the field. It's chronic, isn't it? It's like a oh, sickness. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if you ever thought – you wouldn't have thought it's possible that you could get too much of, you know, of, of enjoying sport, that you're, you're looking for other things other than just, just the pure enjoyment. Now, is there a favourite part of your job? Uh, I just love radio, being on air – being part of radio, I think when something happens and you're involved or something new, uh, I learned pretty quick you have to adapt on your feet in my young days because in Mackay with cyclones coming all the time, you had to take in so much information and you had to disseminate what you thought was important and prioritise and get it on air. 
and you had to do it in short periods of time and most of the time you were there by yourself. So, yeah, you just – I like the immediacy opposite of it. I worked in TV for a couple of times for a little while and I hated having to rely on other people. Just like to get in, get it done and What, contribute. in terms of you had to wait for somebody to edit up what you yeah, had to do yeah. and then – And then if you ask, show me how so I can do it, <laughs> they don't like that. No, it seems to be a bit like that. But radio, you are in control of the information and how it's presented. So, I mean, that's my favourite part of putting something together is the fact that you've got the information first and, well, Twitter's sort of taken over as the immediacy. But in terms of broadcast, radio has still got that magical part to it where you're able to be the one that tells the rest of the world or the listening audience where you are what has actually happened. So, I mean, case in point, the other week when Muhammad Ali died, I mean, talking about the greatest athlete of the 20th century and here's me chugging away on the weekend and I'm the guy that's telling people, the audience, that that's happened. There's something about it, isn't it? And I also like when I was younger, sadly I don't think it happens as much anymore, that you're listening to the radio and you hear a new song. And the first time you hear it, you might not like it, but the third or fourth time you hear it, you think, man, that is fantastic. And then the next couple of times you hear it after that, it's, oh, yeah, it's, it's okay, but it, it doesn't have that thing that it did like the first couple of times I heard it. And you don't hear too much new music on the radio anymore. It's sort of done the rounds on YouTube or whatever before it gets a start. And, and you know, there used to be so much variety, you never knew what was coming up. That I like that too, to wondering what was going to be next and, Wow, and hearing something different. What do you think is the future for radio long-term, given the fact that what we spoke about earlier is that there are so many other options for people to get their entertainment or their news these days? Yeah, I think it's got to adapt. People keep saying it's going to die, but they've been saying that for a long time now and it it just keeps surviving. It wasn't supposed to survive TV. It certainly wasn't supposed to survive colour TV or the internet. It, It just keeps changing and I think... It'll have to keep adapting and there will always be people like Amanda Keller, like Jonesy on the radio that will make people want to listen, like even Alan Jones and Ray Hadley that are saying things that people want to hear and will attract people to it. So as long as it keeps adapting and isn't prepared to stay the way it is, I think it'll keep going and there'll hopefully Ralphie always be a role for people like us. Totally. What do you think makes the Jonesy and Amanda program work? Uh, no bullshit. They're... They're really good friends. They work really well together. Jonesy can sometimes come across as the bogan from the Shire, and he's exactly... Not that there's anything wrong with that. (laughs) He's exactly what you get on air, and so is Amanda. I think they're both very down-to-earth people. Amanda is very, very funny. Jonesy is sometimes very, very surprisingly funny when you're not expecting him to be the one that delivers the killer line. But he's quite prepared to be the straight man sometimes too. And I think they're in touch with the common people. And I know it's a, a phrase you hear a lot and stuff, but when you see them meeting people, not necessarily even fans, just anyone, they're genuinely interested in them. And I've never seen them brush anybody off. They're up for a chat with anybody, even me. You work alongside Sarah Forster every day. How is she different to the great man, Glenn Daniel? Because everybody's got their own unique style and presence, but she's got a great delivery and she's got a great presentation style. How do you find her working next to Sarah every morning? Yeah, well, she comes from a a slightly different angle. I find she reads a little bit faster than Glenn and just delivers the message a bit better that way with 
the way of her stories and her inflections, whereas Glenn, very powerful voice and very deliberate, determined delivery, he, you know, he was, you knew exactly what you're getting with him. And Sarah, very, very competent in her own rights, just reads differently, writes a little bit differently. And, and I think she's changed a bit even since she's become a mother, that uh, her outlook on a few things are different and different stories now <laughs> tend to appeal to her or, or take her notice in a different way. And I think, you know, with a, a lot of our audience, you think who are families, that helps too. We'll wrap it up in a sec, but finally before we Is go... because I just, you just finished your beer? Yeah, I know. bit slow for me, really. I'd just like to get some advice from you for anybody that's looking to break into radio or media these days because... Don't do it. Go where the money is. <laughs> it's it's changed a whole lot since you first started. A lot of things have changed, but as you said, it, radio will still be around. So what are your tips there for people that are really dead keen on the idea of thinking that they can become a newsreader or become a presenter on radio? Yeah, back yourself. Be prepared to do some lousy jobs and work your way up. Uh, I always find it incredible when you get a youngster out of university who goes, I want to be a sports journalist. And go, okay, we've got something for you. Uh, weekends, oh, no, I don't want to work weekends. And it's, when do they play sport? Oh, weekends. Well, that's when you have to work. And, yeah, so I think if you want to be a sports journo and you're starting out and you want to work Monday to Friday, find something else, pal. I've been doing it for 21 years. I'm still doing it. (laughs) Well, you know, this is probably the first job I've ever had that's Monday to Friday, you know, with the occasional weekends. And it takes a bit of getting used to when you first start it, you know, because you're not used to it. And when people say, I've got to work on a weekend, I don't. I don't mind too much. I wouldn't want to do them all the time these days, but, you know, that's just what you've got to do when you're going to get started. And if you have to do mid-dawns, you have to do mid-dawns. I know when I was young, I didn't want to do breakfast because I hated the idea of getting up early. So I didn't want to, because you could interfere how many you had the night before. Jim Dolan, thanks very much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Ralphie. There he is, Jim Dolan from WSFM. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Jim, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at Jim Dolan Sport. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediumatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review, and that way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.